Good morning, Bayou. It's good to be with you again. Um, I'm not the regular pastor here, and I think you know that. Uh, if you're a visitor, maybe you don't know that. So I'm telling you, I'm not the regular pastor here. Um, pastor Ricky Soma is. I am the interim director of Dallas Theological Seminary here in Houston, Texas. And the last time I was here and I said that I worked for Dallas Theological Seminary, somebody came up to me after the service and said, when are you driving back to Dallas? And I said, I live in Missouri City. I am the director of Dallas Theological Seminary in Houston. So uh, all that to set up a shameless plug for the seminary. If you have ever thought about going and getting theological training, we have a degree for you. So there's a lot of people who say, I will never go into vocational ministry. Um, we have degrees for vocational ministry. You can do the full four-year THM here, do Greek and Hebrew and really study the Bible in its original languages. But we actually have a degree designed for professionals. And this is why, because when I was a pastor, um, I wasn't a lawyer, I wasn't an executive in a, a company, I wasn't an accountant, and sometimes the best person to speak to another accountant is an accountant, or the best person to speak to another lawyer is a lawyer. And so we actually have degrees that you can do at e in the evening or online uh, that will beef you up, sort of, to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in your particular profession. And I have a whole other sermon on a Hebrew word called avod, which means to worship or work, um, that actually says the work you do during the week is very pleasing to and very attractive to God. So a lot of times people think that people who are in ministry, they're the ones that are really doing stuff for God. And then everybody else just kind of sits on Sunday and what? Gives money, right? That's what you do. You give money on Sunday. And then that's how you support the ministry. But actually God wants you to do that. So, okay, same, shameless plug is over. This morning I want to talk about Ahab, who is the worst, and Jezebel, who is equally the worst in Israel's history. And so when Icky sent me the preaching schedule for um, the Kings and Prophets series, I particularly chose this one because they are the worst. And I, I just, this text has always kind of dominated my thinking. And I've titled the sermon this morning, I Want. And the reason I titled it that is because this chapter is all about desire. It's all about uh, wanting something, uh, but wanting it apart from God. And wanting something and apart of, wanting it apart from God is a sure um, formula for disaster. So the Bible calls it covetousness. There's also lust, there's greed, there's a whole bunch of words like that. Now, when I was growing up uh, in the body of Christ, so I came to faith in Christ later, so it was 19 years old when I heard the gospel for the first time and gave my life to Jesus Christ and immediately came into the church. For the most part, the winds that were blowing at the time were if you had desires, they were wrong. And so what holiness looked like was restricting your own desires. And so now I'm... I'm kind of like a creature of desire. I think all human beings are just simply creatures of desire. And so now I'm being told that my desires are wrong. But then I started reading the text. And there's a lot of beautiful words about desire in the text, like hunger or thirst for righteousness. Those are, desire, those are words of desires. And so I didn't have a really good theology of what it looked like. And so every time I read a verse like covetousness or greed or lust... What I was thinking is, is just stop it. But let's face it, beloved. The reason you have desires is because God built you to have them. 
God designed you as a creature with desire. Now, um, before I jump into First Kings chapter 21, I have to do a lot of background work so you can particularly understand this text. But one of the key stories that you have to have kind of in your mind when you're thinking about this is the garden itself, where God put a tree in the garden. And as a young Christian, I always thought, why didn't he just make it full of thorns? If he didn't want us to touch it, he should have just made it full of thorns and the fruit to be poisonous and said, hey, there's a poisonous tree in the middle of the garden. I've made it poisonous so you won't desire it. And I've made it thorny so you won't approach it. But actually, the tree itself was desirous. Because this was the test. Do you have desires that are greater than your desire for God? And the test of that is don't touch that tree, even though it looks good. And that's the world we live in. Actually, we probably live in the society and all of history that offers you what you want more than any uh, culture ever. I mean, it's just constantly on our social media. It's constantly in advertising. You can have it your way. In fact, if you're not getting it your way, you feel kind of like, man, I'm not living up to what my peers are. My peers are achieving and... and, um, Uh, grasping for things and having things that I haven't had yet. I just went last weekend to my 40th high school reunion. So I just want you to process that for a minute because as I'm looking at some of your faces, you're probably thinking, dude, I, I was 10, I was not even born. I was born 10 years after that you were, anyway, 40th high school reunion. And so you're standing next to people and you have to ask yourself, this is often why you don't see a lot of gray hairs in church. A lot of times it has nothing to do with, oh no, you've changed the music style and old people don't like the music style and stuff like that. It's because people started with Christ and they had certain desires. And they thought, man, if I'm more disciplined, if I act righteously, if I go to enough Bible studies, if I go to enough prayer meetings, uh, God's going to give me what I really, really want. And then somewhere around 40 or 45 or 50, all of a sudden church doesn't seem that attractive And here's why, because I'm not getting what I want because there's another tree that I've been grasping for my whole life. So we got to seriously look at how these desires operate in our lives with regards to the word of God and how we respond to that. So, okay, now some background work. I already said the garden, but we got to talk about the geopolitical um, framework of this text, the context, and and then some other textual stuff. Okay, so geopolitical situation. In about 1200 BC, a group of people called the Sea Peoples, they weren't necessarily the Sea Peoples, but some of them came by land, also known to some of you as the Philistines, um, had Iron Age technology, and they got really angry for some reason. So maybe there was a famine, or maybe they just decided to expand, but they expanded out of southern grief Greece into the ancient Near East. And as they were doing that, they caused the entire Hittite empire to fall in a night. They attacked the Egyptians and the Egyptians met them in battle and beat them. But they ended up taking five cities from the Egyptians in Southern uh, Palestine. And so when you see the Israelites fighting the Philistines, when they come into the land, those Philistines took five cities from the Pharaoh. And this is how the Pharaoh wrote it in his historical annals. I graciously allowed the Philistines to live in Gaza. (laughs) 
That was a technical term from, they took those cities from me. Okay. And so uh, the Pharaoh said that he allowed them to stay there, but the Philistines stayed there. And they were just one of five groups. At the same time that the Egyptians were kind of getting their nose bloodied by the Sea Peoples and the Hittite Empire fell apart, the Assyrian Empire, which was to the east, also fell apart, probably in part because of disease and famine, but also being attacked by Iron Age weapons and everybody else was a late Bronze Age culture. So if you're reading in your Bible, every once in a while we'll say something like this. And the Hebrews used to go down the hill to get their weapons or their plows sharpened by the Philistines because the Philistines had iron. So it's like America having tanks and everybody else having cavalry. You know, the, the, the Philistines just had the better technology. All that's important because it left a massive power vacuum in what's known as the Levant. So that would be Israel and Syria and that area of the world. And guess what? Every little petty king decided he would do after the big boys were off the stage. All the little petty kings thought, we're in charge now. We're going to expand. And so what's going on with Ahab is his desire to expand the borders of Israel and take over the nations that are next to him. It just so turned out that all the nations around him also wanted to do the same thing. So there's all this fighting between these really small powers. Now, if you know anything about history, about 200 years later, the Assyrians finally kind of get their breath and they squash everybody like a bug. It was the first empire in the world. So the first empire in the ancient world were the Assyrians and they pretty much take everything over. Okay. That's geopolitical background. Next. Uh, contextually what's happening is in the, just the chapter before chapter 21 in first Kings, Ahab gets in a battle with Syria and he has a smaller force and he wins the battle. And then he has dead to rights, the king of Assyria, I mean the king of Syria in his hand. And the king cries for mercy. And Ahab is merciful toward him. And he's merciful toward him just before this chapter. And in this chapter, King Ahab's going to kill one of his own people. And so what's going on in the text here is we're showing you how bad Ahab is. And there's one more fact that you need to know before we jump into 1 Kings 21. And that is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. I'll read it to you. I think Icky has already read this in this series, but I need to read it again. When you come into the land, this is Yahweh speaking to his people, that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it. And then you say, I will set a king like all the nations that are around me over us. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from whom was among your brother. You shall set as the king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. We'll explain that in a minute. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. So let me explain that. That's warfare, wives, and wealth. The way you expanded as a kingdom in the ancient world was you, you had a cavalry. And you hit all your horses to chariots and you attacked people around you. So what God is telling the kings of Israel is you may not build a military because your king will want to use it. 
So you can build a military that's defensive. So when people attack you, you're certainly welcome to protect yourselves, but you are not allowed to build a military machine that would be used in an offensive way. That's what the horses were about. That's what Egypt was about. Egypt was about power. It wasn't about living down in Egypt. It was about a worldview about the way empires were supposed to be. And the kingdoms of this world are always trying to exalt themselves over one another. That's the way of Egypt. That's what the Lord is telling them not to do. And you may not acquire yourself many wives. So um, use this in the first service. It went over well. If you see a 64-year-old fat dude who smokes cigars married to a 32-year-old fitness instructor, what are you thinking? Money. Dude has money. It's not like a lot of 32-year-olds are sitting around looking for somebody who's 64-year-old going, that's my best option. The acquiring of wives was not a harem. It wasn't like a king who just had a lot of money, who could then just pull all the young ladies out of town, uh, who he was attracted to. Wives were the daughters of foreign royalty. And the reason they married them was to have diplomatic relationships with those foreign nations. So when you're looking at 1 Kings chapter 21, when you see Jezebel, she was an eye candy that he got from somewhere else so he could have someone who looked beautiful on his arm. These ladies were trained from when they were little girls to be skilled in diplomacy, to be amazing advisors to their husbands because their mothers were telling them, unless you marry the guy that's going to be the king in this country, when you get older, uh, your dad or your uncles are going to marry you off to some noble who may be in your country because he wants to strengthen internal alliances in his nation, or you'll be married off to a foreign king so that we can have diplomatic relations with him. And when you're there, whose interests do you want uh, or do we want you to represent? You're going to represent your hometown. Man, you get married and you come to Houston. It's like, no, I'm from Memphis. We're going to do Memphis here in Houston. And so that's who Jezebel is. She's incredibly talented, skilled, shrewd woman married to Ahab. And Ahab would have wanted to be married to Jezebel because Tyre and Sidon was like the Galleria Bowl. Tyre and Sidon in the ancient world where she's from is like growing up in the Galleria Mall. So the Phoenicians who were also used to be Canaanites, kind of got pushed to the seas. They were amazing sailors. I was in the Navy. They were amazing sailors. And they went all over the ancient Mediterranean and they would gather goods and they would bring them back to Tyre and Sidon. And then they would disperse them all through the ancient Near East. So they were incredible business people. And in that power vacuum, Ahab would have wanted to have an alliance with Tyre and Sidon. So he marries Jezebel. And then the whole thing about not acquiring wealth is this. And have an economy like we did, like a free market economy where people could go start a business and then grow their business and then have profit and then employ more people and then grow and grow and grow. That's not the way wealth was built in the ancient world. It was agrarian society. They worked really hard to get what they had. And usually the way they got more was they attacked a foreign land. So you see back in Deuteronomy 17, what God is telling every king who sits up there in a position of authority is don't put yourself in a position to be able to take stuff 
from other people. Don't make alliances with people who are not from Israel and don't have this sort of thuggish mentality where you would just go grab the stuff of your neighbor and keep it for yourself. Because kings, leaders, or if you've been following this sermon series at all, you're a king somewhere, right? Every single one of us has authority over something. This text is not not distant from us because this is ancient world and we live in a modern world where we elect our representatives. Everybody has power. Everybody is granted a measure of authority or influence over other people. And what the word of God is telling us is when you get there, it's not about you. It's not about you acquiring more. It's not about you desiring more. It's not about you building up your own little empire. It's about you serving. I say this all the time. There are no rungs, beloved. There are no rungs on the ladder in the kingdom of heaven that go up. If you sense yourself ascending, you're probably in the wrong kingdom. The scripture says that God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. And in the kingdom of God's dear son, here's our metric. The greatest amongst us is the servant of all. The greatest amongst us is the servant of all. Now, if God puts you on a stage, and he very well may do that, and if God puts you in a position of great power and affluence, there's nothing wrong with that. With getting a promotion at work, it's just when you get there, never let your authority Be bigger than your servant's heart. Your servant's heart always has to be bigger than the power that you have. Because the moment somebody puts power in your hand, if you have a servant's heart, what you'll think of is, let me bring my brothers up. Let me bring my sisters up. Who else can I include in here? Who else can I bless with what I have? That is not the language of our culture. It's man, when I get there, everybody look at me. But we got to make it about Jesus. Okay, so the Bible calls this covetousness. That's not a word that we normally use. Greed or lust is is another way to talk about desire off the rails. And we're going to look this morning at really what is the problem. I'm going to just dig right into your heart. If you've never read, I'm going to just pop out and say this. If you've never read a book called Sin and Temptation by John Owen, you should read that book. You'll be reading about some kind of sin and you'll go, I don't have that problem at all. And it could be true. You might not have that problem at all. And then you'll hit a chapter and it'll feel like John just crawled in your heart and he's just speaking from inside going, this is exactly the way you are. And it'll just lay you out. So sin and temptation by John Owen would be hard to read, but it's worth it. Okay. In the text, now Naboth, the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I might have it for a vegetable garden because what's near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and he would eat no food. So you got the king of Israel pouting 
on his bed because he wants Naboth's vineyard and neighbor won't give it to him. Naboth won't give it to him because it's the inheritance of his fathers. Now there's a couple of really, really important details in here. And number one is Naboth trusts God. See, as you're looking at this, you're thinking in a materialistic modern culture, dude, cash out, cash out. You don't have to work the vineyard anymore. You'll just have a huge stack of coin and then you'll be able to just go live life the way you want to. You'll be able to retire early. That sounds attractive. And then the other one was, I'm not going to give away my inheritance of my father's. Right? He's, he's saying that. I'm not, I don't want a better vineyard because this is Ahab. I mean, this is um, Naboth in the northern kingdom, which is split from the southern kingdom, but still staying true to what God said. God gave the land. God gave the land as an inheritance. And so what Naboth would be giving away is what is due to the future generations. Parents, be very careful what you decide because you set into motion stuff for your children that they have no vote on. Parents, you move away from God. That's a move for your kids away from God. You move into lasciviousness. That's a move for your children to move into lasciviousness, right? This is why parenting is such a high honor to be standing in front of the most high God going, I want to go this direction or, or this is the great parenting technique. Don't do what you see in me. Just do what I tell you. What kid wants to hear that from their parents? Naboth believes God. Naboth sees something in front of him that's better. Naboth has desires just like you and I have. Naboth doesn't want to get up at 6 a.m. and go to work every day. Naboth would love a better vineyard. Naboth would love a better cash crop. But there's something operating in Naboth's life that's not operating in Ahab's life, and that's the word of God. Naboth trusts God, and so he says no to the king. So much easier to say no to a peer and it's so much easier to say no to a subordinate. Dang, is it not hard to say no to authority? But then this is where the test will come, right? This is where the real test will come of your integrity with regards to the word of God is when you say no to someone who has authority or who has more influence or more power than you. And they say, I just want you to just fudge it a little bit. Just sign here and no one will know any better. And when it comes time for promotion, I'll remember that you took care of my back because, you know, you'll scratch my back because I scratch or you scratched mine. So I'll scratch yours. Did I get that right? It did it come out. Sometimes my head goes faster than my, my mouth and it just all gets garbled in there. Okay. Um, Ahab is operating without word. Um, little subtle textual clue here is that Egypt is viewed as a garden and God always viewed Israel as a vineyard. So God took Israel out of Egypt and he planted them in the land 
And he talks about it in Isaiah chapter 5 as Israel being a vineyard. And so the fact that Ahab wants to turn the vineyard back into a garden is, is like a little textual clue saying Ahab is a massive move backwards. Ahab is a move back to Egypt. You, you don't want to be Ahab. But Jezebel, his wife, Ahab's wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he says to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if, you, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now not govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so now we're going to move from not being governed by word, which is an external thing, to being governed by our internal conscience. So we need to be governed by something external. Now, beloved, let's face it. The word of God is not the only thing external to us. There's a cultural moment that's external to us. There is family that's external to us. There are peers, there are fads, there are multiple numbers of things that are external to us that we can obey and not follow in the path that God wants us to do. So once we divorce ourselves from something external like that, then we go entirely internal. And let's face it. If you don't have a God that can say no to you, it's not a God. If you have a desire that you always crave and give into that's not a God because that thing won't deliver you in the end. We have to have a God that can come down and say, Stan, um, let's think about that for a moment. What you did was just flat wrong. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to repent. You need to go make that right. I never want to do that. Do you? I don't. I want to just give, just give free reign to all my desires. Or if you're watching the Olympics, do you think those people who sit on the medal stand gave in to their donut desire? <laughs> like for the last four years, um, I was a rower in college. And so I've been reading about all the rowing that went on in the Olympics by the um, American team. Uh, this is the first time the women haven't medaled in a long time. The women medaled in three previous Olympics and they got the gold and this year they got fourth and they were talking to him and they said, would you do anything different? And they said, no, I just loved being with these girls. We worked really hard, but COVID really hammered us and we were all in our individual uh, homes or living with people and we were, we were doing pieces in the park and we were doing pieces in the basement and we were training really hard because we were part of this much bigger team and they weren't giving in to their desire to give up or quit even though they weren't with one another because there was something higher. There was something external that they wanted to achieve and I think we only had two ladies that were on this team that had previous Olympic experience. So we're looking forward in, in the next Olympics to maybe win in the gold again. But the whole point was is they had something external to them. If you don't have something external guiding you, it will just go into your own conscience. And so my wife, my beloved wife, when she was growing up, was not allowed to chew gum in public. Because in the South, chewing gum in public was like, dancing. <laughs> you know, it's pretty bad, you know. Just, 
Never knew if chewing gum would lead to dancing or dancing would lead to chewing gum, but it was wrong. (laughs) Well, that came from her mom and she respected her mom and she honored her mom. And so even to this day, we're 58 years old. She sees somebody chewing gum in public. It just kind of a memory. It's like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And the other one, this was funny. You weren't allowed to turn around in church. When you sat in church, if somebody came in the back, you weren't allowed to turn your head and see who was there. And my wife, my mother-in-law would pinch her thigh. She would reach over and just grab a piece of that thigh and just pinch it really hard. And so you learn to sit up because of this external word. But if you don't have that, then your conscience just says, well, whatever I've kind of received, I'm going to kind of mush together and I'm going to start doing whatever I want. And if you start going internal, beloved, you know what happens? You just do what you want. Let's just face it. If you want it, you'll take it. At some level, you'll give free reign to your desires because your conscience will break someday. And let's be honest. There are things that I know that I should not do with full knowledge do them. I serve the most high God. There's been times where I've said, Lord, I'm checking out for a moment. I'm going over here. One theologian called that temporary atheism. It's like, I didn't believe there was a final consequence for what I'm about to do. And this is how I justified it. You'll just receive me back, right? You like to forgive people. Okay, so we're now set up to Jezebel just acting without a conscience. She just told Ahab, you're the king. You're the man of power. If you coveted it, if you want it, just take it. It's yours. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. Remember I told her, told you that she was good at diplomacy? She wrote letters. A lot of times people think in the ancient world that that women didn't know how to do that. She wrote letters, grabbed his seal, rolled it over it, and sent it to the elders of Naboth's town. So she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, so do something religious, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men, the Hebrew says sons of Belial. Belial later became the name for Satan. So put two sons of Belial opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders... And the leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. Okay, I'm going to pause right here. This wasn't Houston. This wasn't a city of millions of people. These elders and leaders grew up with Naboth. They went to junior high school with him. They were on a football team with him. They sang in the choir together. They attended each other's weddings. They were groomsmen. And he was a groomsman for them. And they are so afraid of the power that Jezebel is manifesting in Israel that without a thought, they have their friend, their neighbor, potentially somebody they're related to, stoned to death. I mean, there's no hesitation in the text. They don't even think about it. They go, wait a minute. 
Maybe let's renegotiate the deal. Maybe we can convince Naboth what to do. They just proclaim a fast. They put Naboth up front. They invite the two sons of Belial in and they go, you curse God and king. And then they pull him out of town and they stone him to death. She's operating without a conscience. This could care less because if I want the vineyard, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Now, hopefully the Holy Spirit is landing this somewhere in your heart where you've wanted something in the past and you have taken it from someone else. Even in a subtle way. Maybe you just wanted entrance into a community so you just bought into the gossip. And so you started speaking about somebody else's reputation and you were just robbing them of their reputation and murdering them the whole time. Because you wanted acceptance. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times as a pastor, I've had people sit in my office and say, God just wants me to be happy. That is so close to the truth. I'm going to say it a different way. God wants you to be happy. He doesn't just want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy also. He wants you to be righteous also. He wants you to be kind also. He wants you to be good also. And so when we land on God just wants me to be happy, what I've just said before the Most High is, if I have a desire and you're a God, give it to me. And if I have a desire and you're not given to me, you're a bad God. I'm going to switch. It's like what I said earlier. That's why a lot of gray people, gray-haired people aren't in the church. is because they've been serving God to get something. And he hasn't given it to them. They haven't landed on the idea yet that he's enough. In fact, God designed you with desires. So at the end of every one of your desires lands on him. Love it. We live in a very broken world. And that just does not seem real. I mean, I wake up in the same world you do. And there are so many things that I want to happen that are not happening. There are so many things that I pray before the most high to get and they don't happen. Let me tell you a story about why I'm the director of DTS Dallas. It's because my boss has ALS. And so in April, he got ALS. He went into surgery. And when he came out of surgery, he couldn't breathe. So they took him to the um, emergency room. And then they found out that his nerve endings are, are dying. So I visited him a week ago Thursday. The reason I came to DTS Dallas in Houston was to be discipled by Bruce Vaughn. This is a couple years older than me. He's, he's a little bit further down. I don't see a whole lot of men making it to the end of their life with holiness and righteousness and goodness. And so Bruce is that kind of guy. So I wanted to be around Bruce. And I've been in this job for less than two years. And now he has ALS. And I'm sitting in front of a man who's sitting in a wheelchair who cannot breathe without forced air. He can't lift his arms, so I couldn't shake his hand. He can only like lift his his hand at the wrist just a little bit. And I looked at him and I said, Bruce, did Jesus prepare you for this? Or is he just walking you through it? Well, he can't motion me closer and he can't talk loud enough to hear. So I got up and I leaned over and I put my ear against his breathing machine. And he said, no, Jesus didn't prepare me for this. But when God gives you an assignment, you take it. 
And then he said, there is no anger and there is no bitterness and there's no frustration. I'm just serving Jesus. Beloved, you don't get there and say that unless you've been saying no to a lot of your desires before then. Because you know what I want to do? I want to die as a grandpa with all my tribe around me, blessing me and going, thanks for being a great dad. Thanks for being a great grandpa and my wife there. I mean, I don't want her to die first, right? (laughs) My life is good. (laughs) She's sitting right over here. My life is really good because I'm married to Carla. And everybody go, we'll see you later. Okay, come with me in the kingdom. That's how I want to die. I don't want to be struggling for every last breath. But here is a man who believes God so strongly that he would take an assignment like that and give glory to Jesus of Nazareth because Jesus of Nazareth have called him to do that. The other thing I don't want is any consequences to the choices I make. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had, was, had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. You notice the text keeps saying the Jezreelite? It's because the author keeps wanting to say this guy believed in the inheritance God gave. Naboth is the hero of this story, and he's dead, by the way. Keeps saying, Naboth, the Jezreelite. In fact, his name is more in in this text, more than um, Jezebel's and Ahab's, who seem to be the main characters. But the main character in God's eyes is Naboth because he's faithful. And they keep saying, he's from there and you took his land, you took his promise, which he refused to give you for money for Naboth is not alive, but he's dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose, went down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then... The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. Same word used when Israel was told to take possession of the land. So now there's this counter thing going on. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Okay, this is going to get pretty grisly here for a moment. But, but let me just say something. Ahab goes down to the vineyard thinking, there's no liability for what just happened. There's no final judgment because he's not thinking ahead. He's thinking, I'm the king of Israel. I can just take now. So whatever conscience he had, He's now lost it and saying, I can just go and take this vineyard and I'll be fine. Let's just back up a little bit. Do you know a story where a guy got something from a woman that he wasn't supposed to have? I know a story like that. It's Genesis 3. This is just more of Genesis 3. This is just her saying, you're the king. He's not willing to take it. So she takes it for him and gives it to him. Crazy. Oh, and another one. At the beginning of this chapter, we're in a vineyard. At the end of this chapter, we're in a vineyard. That sounds like Genesis 1, God creating a garden in Genesis 1 and 2. And the end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, where God recreates a garden. And who is going to be in the garden? 
Jesus of Nazareth, you're right. And he's going to walk in and he's going to go, let's talk about all those desires you had your whole life. In other words, there's a payment coming, beloved. There's a payment coming. We're going to get to the end of your desires and talk about liability. Because Jesus of Nazareth is going to, it's not going to be Elijah the Tishbite that shows up. The word of God, the prophet, just represents the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And Jesus is going to be standing there in your garden. And he's going to go, let's talk about all the things that you wanted your whole life. Apart from me. One of my favorite statements in The Chosen that we've been watching is, I ask so very little of those who don't follow me, but so much of those who do. And if you say you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is asking for a whole lot. He's asking for your whole life. He's asking for you to be like him. He's asking you to be filled with his spirit and enact in this world the designs of his kingdom. And so he taught us to pray, not my will, but thine be done. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to wake up constantly and say, what do you want today, Jesus, my Lord? What do you want today, Jesus, my leader? What do you want today, Jesus, my master? And Ahab's not that guy. And now the penny has dropped. And now Ahab has to face the music. Let me read this text. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Okay, so let's see. On the scale of zero to Ahab, he's the worst. (laughs) Whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. Okay, so let's count it. Um, You shall have no other gods beside me. He violated that. You shall not make for yourself an idol. He violated that. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. He violated that. I'm not so sure about the Sabbath, but I'm pretty sure Baal worshipers don't follow the Sabbath. So we're, but we're going to give them a pass on that one because we're gracious. Okay, so out of the top four commandments, he's violated three. Out of the next six, you shall honor your father and mother. Hmm, I think I could get there, but we're going to give him a pass on honoring father and mother. But murder, steal, lie, and covet? Seven of ten. In this chapter, Ahab and Jezebel violate seven of the ten commandments. And you're sitting here thinking, oh man, I only violated three last week. I must be good. (laughs) The text says in the New Testament, violate one commandment of the law, violate the whole law. Take from the tree, you violate everything. Because when you take from the tree, you say, I am in the same status as God. That's why one sin is equal to all the sins. Because if you just do one, then you'll do them all. Or Paul said it in Romans 7, that covetousness gives birth to every other sin. I was translating through Romans in my quiet time when I watched um, Breaking Bad. And it just so turned out that Walt is like the, the personification of covetousness in story. He just wants something that he felt was denied him the whole time. So I'm, I'm going, really? Covetousness is that bad? And then I watch Breaking Bad and I go, oh, it's terrible. He will create a whole kingdom of meth and watch people die from it. And 
For those of you who have ever watched the series, do you ever wonder why somebody's like dying this horrible death next to him and he never connects that that was his fault? He's like producing the best meth of all time and people are taking it and dying and he's like, I'm about to be in a Fortune 500 company. You know, if, if we could measure the amount of money that I make, I'd be a billionaire. Do you ever think like that? Have you ever operated in a space where you're seeing people that you hurt, but then somehow just be able to dismiss it immediately? Man, I've been in that space. And when the word of God comes, it doesn't feel good at all. Because I know there's a judgment. And when Ahab heard those words, okay, let me say it again. When the worst of all time heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. That's got to be incredibly comforting to you, shouldn't it? If Ahab could repent and the Lord relent, what if you repented? What if, what if you got really serious with your covetousness and your greed and your lust and you says, I've been giving full vent to those or maybe full enough vent to a limit so that my neighbor doesn't find out that I'm really doing it because it would be really embarrassing if I told people what I was doing or if my friends knew um, but it's just kind of a monstrous thing that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know where the Lord has you. What if, beloved, you met the word of God there? Do you think there would be judgment or there would be forgiveness? Do you think the Lord would not relent and show you grace? I said this in the first hour. Sometimes you get to the end of the sermon and it sounds like what I'm telling you to do is go home and try harder. I absolutely don't want you to try harder. I don't you give any thought to you trying to be better and make up for what you've done. I don't know how Ahab could make Naboth come back because he can't. He doesn't have the keys to sin and death or he doesn't have the keys to the kingdom and he hasn't conquered sin and death. He doesn't have power over life. Jesus does. So let's back up into the text a little bit and say, do you know somebody who was put at the head of his people? between two worthless men who was taken outside of the city and executed for his whole life holding on to the word of God? See, that's Jesus of Nazareth. That's Jesus of Nazareth. The reason Naboth gets so much space in this text is because he's the penultimate and God is just setting you up to see the ultimate. This is how you deal with your desires. Is you look at the one who in the garden said, Father, is there any other way to do this? Is there another way? Nevertheless, not my will, not my desire be done, but thine 
And because he gave his life in exchange for us, it gives us now the power to say no to our desires. Because Christ was willing to bear the brunt. And if, if you haven't got to this point, uh, let me take the thought a little bit further because maybe in our hearts, our conscience wouldn't let us take it that far. But let's be serious. Naboth acted righteously and got killed. <laughs> You're a preacher, dude. I know what you say on Sunday, but that don't work Monday to Friday in my world. I'm not laying down my life. I'm not giving up what I have here in this world. I'm going to fight to keep what I have. I deserve to have what I have. If I act like a Christian, they will run me over. And that may be true. That very well may be true. What I'm telling you is, this isn't the kingdom. This is a big fake place. The word of God is more real than the chair you're sitting on. The chair you're sitting on, you're going to pass away in a moment. In flaming fire. And God is going to bring a new kingdom. And a new heavens. And a new earth. And your belief in that is what allows you to stand in the face of wickedness and make a decision for Christ by the power that he gives you, even though it may cost you something. Even though it may cost you something. And may we as a people in Houston be known as sheep led to the slaughter. May we as people in Houston be the kind of people that lay our lives down because that seed is the seed that will give life to other people. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made it so clear to us that we cannot do this on our own. We have no strength, we have no ability to say no to the cravings and the desires and the covetousness and the lusts that are within us. Father, our whole lives, our culture is telling us all the time, just seize it, just take it, just have it, just enjoy it. And yet you have said no, and you have said boundaries. Bring us back, Father. Bring us back to your son to see the one who gave his life that we might have life. And if there is a soul here today who finds themselves in the bondage of their lusts and their desires. Help them repent. Come home to Jesus Christ in whom is life. And we pray in his name and all the saints of God said, amen.